Thank you guys. Good morning. This morning we be in our new series in the first book of the Bible. It's called Genesis. But rather than dive into chapter 1 this morning, I'd, I'd like us just to begin looking at a few preliminary things that I think are going to help us start our journey together off on the right foot. When you're going on a trip, it's important that you do some planning, right? It's important that you figure out what's the best route that you're going to take. It's important that you figure out what you need to pack and you check off every single little thing off of that list so that you can go on that journey and you can experience life well as you go. That's what we want to do this morning together. In, in a sense, we're going to pack the family car together. And like most trips that I go on, chances are that I'm going to forget something. I'll leave someone's toothbrush behind, we'll leave someone's reading glasses, but don't worry, I trust there will be a Target or a Walmart along the way, and we're going to be just fine together. And we're going to begin this morning by kind of getting our bearings, by looking at just a few key passages in Genesis. It's kind of going to be like looking at the Rick Steves travel special, where we're going to get an idea of what we have in store for us. If you're quick with your Bibles and you can flip really quickly, uh, you can follow along in your Bibles. If not, we're going to have it up on the screens for you. But would you stand with me now as we read together from God's Word? We're going to begin with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first Day. Let's skip down to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. Chapter 7, verse 22. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. 
chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and Him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I'm really excited for this study. This is going to be fantastic. I know that for some of us, when, when, you, when you get a, a new book, it, there's a big temptation to flip to the back and to see how it ends. You want to know, will that lost puppy ever be found? Will that, that dreadful ring ever be cast in the fires of Mount Doom from which it came? Will the good guys win in the end? Or will they ever get back together? Not if you're reading Romeo and Juliet. We all want to know how things end, and certainly when it comes to the story of humanity, especially so. When we look at how things are going in our world, the direction things seem to be headed, it just it it creates in us a certain level of intrigue for last things. And Hollywood knows this. They know that people are fascinated with future things. And so they, it seems like they continually bombard us with these films about the end of the world. We look at the signs of the times and we wonder... We wonder, how's it all going to work out? Is there any hope? Who's going to be the one to help us through this? Who's going to be the one who's going to save us from that asteroid? Or those dinosaurs? Or those tornado sharks that are falling from the sky? Who can we look to? But not all threats are fantasies. Some are very real. How are we going to survive with the ever-rising cost of living? (laughs) What's going to become of a nation with this or that kind of politician in office? What's going to become of my marriage, my family, or my health if things keep going in the same direction? What's going to happen to society when every day it seems like people are just getting more selfish? more self-consumed, more infatuated with graphic violence and destructive drugs, more involved in promiscuous behavior. These kinds of questions, they stir within us kind of a primeval groaning, a consuming thirst to know how it's all going to end. We all want to know how it ends, and that's nothing to be ashamed of, but crucial, crucial to our understanding of how things end is knowing how they began. How can we know how things should end 
if we don't know how they began, or we don't know how they were intended to be from the beginning, or how they went wrong. Can you imagine watching Gone with the Wind, having never seen the beginning or all the parts in between? And you get to the end, and there's a teary-eyed Scarlett O'Hara dressed from black head to toe, and she says, Tara, home. I'll go back home, and I'll think of some way to get him back. After all, tomorrow is another day. Tara? Home? Get who back? Tomorrow's another day, but what's wrong with today? See, if, if you don't know the beginning, and you don't know all the parts in between, then the end just doesn't seem to make sense. Because you don't have the full picture. You've got to have the full picture. There are a lot of people who are walking around these days with an incomplete picture of the world. They have certain impressions of the way things should be. They have various ideas about what the world should look like. But those pieces don't seem to all fit together. It's kind of like they've been thrown a bag of a thousand puzzle pieces and somehow they're expected to put this puzzle together without even the picture on the front of the box. And what's worse, in this bag of puzzle pieces, there's not just pieces from one puzzle, there's pieces from all sorts of different puzzles. How am I supposed to build this thing? What's it supposed to look like? It's kind of an impossible task. And so there are a lot of people walking through life trying to piece together this puzzle. They're trying to make sense out of life, but they've got this bag of hodgepodge pieces that just never are going to fit together. They've got some pieces that they found in in Sunday school or at vacation Bible school. Some they got in high school biology class. A few others they got from mom or dad or maybe a, a respected adult. When they were growing up, some they've gotten from friends, friends on social media. Some they've gotten from their favorite TV show or a book that they read. And there are a whole lot of pieces in their bag that just come from personal experience. This is what my experience has been. Therefore, this must say something about the way the world really is. And so they end up with this puzzle that's, well, puzzling. Some things make sense, but what does that, that monkey head in front, of the, in front of the leaves have to do with this princess tiara over here and this quarter piece of Han Solo's Millennium Falcon? How does this all fit together? It doesn't make any sense. For some people, their view of the world just doesn't add up. And they may look at the pieces they've put together and realize, part of my puzzle leads me to believe that Every, every person should just follow the dream that's in their heart. But you know, what do I do with this urge inside of me that wants to tear apart every person that gets in my way? Part of my puzzle tells me that children are precious, that human life is sacred. But another part tells me that I should be able to toss them aside if they're any inconvenience to the way I want to live my life. Part of me may believe that there's a powerful, loving God that exists, but some personal experiences tell me that 
because of all the pain I've had in my life, that God must not exist. And part of me longs to believe that my life has significance and purpose. That's what my friends have been telling me. That's what movies that I watch have been telling me. Songs that I listen to, they're telling me this. But then scientists seem to be telling me that I'm just here by chance. And my life really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. What is with this puzzle? The pieces don't fit. It doesn't work. Everything is jumbled. That's one of the reasons we need Genesis. It's one of the reasons that we need the book of beginnings. The book of Genesis, it provides us with crucial information. It gives us those key puzzle pieces that help us frame our understanding of reality. It gives us pieces that help us form a worldview that I believe is the most complete and comprehensive and aligns most closely with and best explains the world that you and I live in. And not only that, Genesis gives us a peek at what's going to happen at the end of the book. It gives us reasons to hope. It points us to the fact that God has planned a wonderful end to our story. We need Genesis because understanding the beginning illuminates our present and gives us joyful expectation for what is to come. It illuminates our present, everything that we see going on in our world. We see it through the eyes of Genesis, and all of a sudden, things start to make sense. And not only do we see it and are discouraged by the reality of what we're caught up in here, but we also have reason to hope, and we cling to that hope recognizing that God had a plan from before the beginning. This is good. So we know why we're going to go on this trip. Now what are some expectations that we might pack into our vehicle that are going to help us along the way? What are some goals that we're going to have as we approach the book of Genesis? I think it's important that as we walk through this book over the next year and a half that we know what we're trying to accomplish here. First, let me share what I hope not to do. It's my intention not necessarily to line up the Bible with science or science with the Bible. There are a lot of smart people out there that are trying to do just that to make that happen, and God bless them, but I don't think that's the best use of our time here on Sunday mornings. Furthermore, I don't intend to solve the young earth versus old earth debate Does the Hebrew word yom, does it refer to a 24-hour, literal 24-hour period? Or is it just refer to long periods of time? At the risk of probably frustrating some, I'll, I'll come right out and go on record as saying, I believe it refers to a literal day. And I think there are good reasons to believe that. I think there's evidence for that. If you believe differently on this one, well, no. If you believe differently on this one... That's okay. 
This is a church that has room for both. I don't believe that this is one of those essential things that we need to divide on. In fact, if we do divide on this, that is a very, very sad thing. We can talk about the details of evidence for which idea is best, but I don't think that is a good use of our time. I think there are more pressing matters in this book for us to look at. As we approach the book of Genesis, we're going to hold firmly the conviction that what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 is true. That all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for a training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture... It comes from God and is useful for making disciples of Jesus. It's useful for correcting us, for informing and instructing us. It's useful for forming us into the people that God wants us to be. And God didn't give his word so that we can simply grow in head knowledge. Though what we come to know is crucial. It's crucial for living lives that are grounded in reality. And it's crucial to our faith in Jesus Christ. What you know is important. God didn't give us his words so that we can sit around the campfire, smoking pipes and debating the finer points of theology. Though I think that devoting ourselves to careful study and consideration of doctrine is important. God didn't give us his word so that we can just dedicate our lives to justifying what God has said with every finding or hypothesis of science. Though in the end, I'm fully confident that the physical universe is ultimately going to be shown to line up with God's truth. God gave us his word so that we might know him, so that we might know who we are, so that we might learn of our great need for him and and find out how he has made a way for that need to be met, so that we might discover how we can be restored to God through Jesus Christ and then live in a way that brings him glory and good to other people. So when we look at the book of Genesis, our goal, our goal is to understand what God wants us to know, to consider what difference that knowledge should make in our lives. And to make that happen, I believe we need to be committed to a few things. As we dive into our study through Genesis, it's my intention to help us see this book in a way that its original readers would have seen it, at least to the best we possibly can, to try to step into their shoes and understand how the message would have been understood to them. I think that's one thing. Another thing is that we, I want to help us understand how it frames and informs the larger message of the entire Bible. How does this message of Genesis, how does it help us interpret what God is doing in the rest of human history? And then three, Let it move us to marvel and trust and obey and worship the one who it's all about. 
and that's God. So in order for this to happen, I think there are a few things that we need to keep in mind, a few things that we should know about this road that we are going to travel on together. First of all, Genesis, it's an ancient book. It is ancient. There is good reason to believe that Moses wrote this book as the children of Israel were about to enter the promised land. Regardless of what kind of a date you put on that, and you could debate all you want about that, regardless... That's a long time ago. That's a really long time ago. There has been a lot of history between then and where we stand today. We believe that Genesis, that God has something to say to us today in and through the book of Genesis. But we also got to recognize there was an original audience here, an original context that was more than likely very different than our own. So we want to ask what this book must have meant to them before we jump forward and extract what it means for us. Secondly, Genesis was written with a purpose. Now, Genesis is a historical book. Some people will say that it's myth, and I've been doing a lot of reading, and it is not on the same level of myth when you look at the religions that were out there back in the day. No, this is a historical book, and yet it's more than history. It was never intended to be a mere chronology of events or biographical information on one nation. It's history with a purpose. It's theological history. And there are certainly thousands and thousands of stories that could have been told, that could have made their way into this book in the span of time that it covers. But the reality is only certain stories have been recorded. Only certain stories, certain events have been plucked out of history, placed into this book, and they've been put there for the purpose of helping its readers get an accurate picture of who God is and how he interacts with his creation. They're there so that we can understand the story of the human race and why it's such a mess. And as they were standing at the doorstep of the promised land, these, these people were about to interact with a lot of different other peoples who had all sorts of different beliefs about how the way the world worked, all different kinds of puzzle pieces in their bag. And it was important that the people of Israel knew exactly who their God was and where they came from. They were marching in a territory where they would, they would be faced with all sorts of different ideas about how things worked. But Genesis was written to give God's people a solid worldview that would enable them to walk confidently into the unknown. Now, because Genesis was written with a purpose, it doesn't say everything that we would like it to say. There are going to be questions that pop up in our minds as we're reading this book that it doesn't bother to answer. Like, why was this serpent an enemy of God? And did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Who are these, who are these Nephilim people? 
Where did they come from? The Bible says they were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. What does that actually mean? And we can speculate about these things, but that's all it's going to be, is speculation. And it can be frustrating. When I was in college, I was wrestling with some questions like this, and a very wise professor, he came alongside of me, and he said, Jared, you need to remember to be concerned with the things that the Bible is concerned about. And he went on to tell me that when you look at God's Word, you see the things that it emphasizes and the things that it talks about the most. He says, you pay attention to those things first. Because until you figure out what the Bible really wants you to know, you're just wasting your time with all those other little details. I think that's sound advice. I really do. The Bible wasn't given just to satisfy our curiosity. It's here that we might know the truth about the things that matter. And while I believe that there is richness, there is depth, there is complexity to God's word that goes beyond what we can even know in this life, I think that because God is good, and we know that God wants us to know about himself, I think we can confidently say that what God wants us to get is plainly seen. It's the stuff he's made ultra clear. And that's the stuff we really want to hold on to with both hands. We talk sometimes about, um, about going deep into Bible study. And I don't think there's anything wrong with going deep and trying to extract the deep teachings in here. But I'm not convinced that's the Christian's first thing that they need to be doing. I think Christians need to be a little bit more concerned, not so much about going deep, as much as we need to let the clearly taught word seep down deep inside of us bringing transformation into our souls, letting it penetrate the darkest regions of our hearts, wash us clean, transform us from the inside out. I don't know about you, but I've encountered far too many Christians who are reservoirs of biblical truth, but whose lives produce more thorns and thistles than spirit-produced fruit. We want to be people that produce fruit. My hope is that as we study Genesis, we will allow God's purposes to come to fruition inside of us. Genesis is ancient. Genesis has purpose. Finally, Genesis has structure. It has structure. When you think of Genesis, you might be thinking of a bunch of different stories about heroes of faith. Well, first of all, there's only one real hero in the book of Genesis, and in the Bible for that matter. There's only one real hero. But it's true, there are a lot of different stories in here. Genesis is one of the longest books in the Bible, 50 chapters. There's a lot in here, but there's also a rhyme and reason to the order of things in this book. We've already said that the name Genesis, it means origins, it means beginnings, and that's exactly what it's written to be. It's the account of how it all started, how it all fell apart, and even gives us a glimpse of how it is all going to be put back together. It's the first chapter in the great story of the human race from its beginning to its downfall 
to the intervention of its creator to redeem it, restore it, and save it. In it are the right pieces we need to form our picture of our world. Genesis has two major parts. The first spans chapters 1 through 11. It tells us the story of God and basically the whole world. The second part is chapters 12 through 50. And there, there, rather than giving us a broad view of the world, it zeroes in on one particular family. It zeroes in on Abram and then the rest of his family. In chapters 12 through 25, the main focus is on Abram itself. 26 to 27, we look primarily at Abraham's son Isaac. From there, we mainly look at Jacob. And then in 37 through 50, finally we finish up focusing on Joseph. And a lot of attention is given to Joseph and his story. Both of these major sections are linked together by a very small, very three-verse, in fact, three-verse little link. And in that link is the crucial message of what Genesis is all about. It's extremely significant. In your reading this week, if you're going to read through Genesis, focus in on 12, 1 through 3. But let's take just a moment, in the time that we have together, let's look at some major themes that appear within these two sections in the entire book of Genesis. In chapters 1 through 2, we see God makes the world. He makes it out of nothing. He, he, he's outside of it, and he makes everything within it and everything outside of it as well. He makes it good. He creates an environment in which human beings can live and thrive and grow. Here we see God's unbelievable power. We see his wisdom. We see his creativity. We see his meticulous attention to detail. The craftsmanship that there is of this creator is amazing. And then we also see his grace put on display as he just wants to bless his creation in amazing ways. But you know, it isn't long before we see his holiness in the book of Genesis See, God didn't create us just so that creation can run wild and do whatever it wants. Like creations of artists today, the design of his creation, it, it, it was not to be tampered with. It was to be treated with a, a, a respect and a dignity. And most importantly, he as an artist was, was to be regarded. He was, the, he was the one who was to be given credit for all of this. If not, he would press charges. And that's what we see happen in the next nine chapters. In chapters 3 through 11, we see how the human race chooses to distrust, chooses to disobey, and this leads towards disaster. We see the world turn from a paradise into a harsh environment. We see humanity turn inward and seek to find peace and joy and satisfaction, significance, even truth, apart from God. We see pain, we see suffering, we see fear, we see deception spring up, and we see a downward spiral into deeper and deeper darkness, which, you know, interestingly enough, that's the exact opposite of what God intended. You look at the first verses of chapter 1, and there was darkness, and God creates light. 
And he says, that's good. We go backwards. Because God is holy and just, he can't let this kind of behavior go unaddressed. And true to his word, God brings judgment. First he banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. Then we read in chapter 6, as we already read right at the beginning, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. So what does God do? God says, we have to punish this. Because of my holiness and because of my justice, this must be punished. And this is when we see a second judgment of God. This time in the form of a catastrophic worldwide flood. This is not the stuff that a children's cartoon or a flannel graph could ever adequately portray. This is a brutal demonstration. Absolutely brutal demonstration of Almighty God's fully justified wrath on sinful humanity. God's holiness is not to be trifled with. There's a third judgment. Finally, we see God's judgment poured out in the form of a halting division of the human progress. And it comes with the divine introduction of multiple languages that bring division at the Tower of Babel. And these three judgments, they leave us wondering... (laughs) Is there any hope for these people? Is there any hope for this, this creation that has just been destroying itself? doesn't look like it. Human sin keeps getting worse. God continues to pour judgment out on it. We're not off to a good start here. But then the link in chapter 12. Something happens. God, the Holy One, shows His mercy. Paul told us in Ephesians 1, 4, that even before the foundation of the world, God had a plan. Here in Genesis 12, 3, God begins to make that plan known. And He tells Abram, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God showing incredible mercy to people that deserve nothing but death and judgment. They're created beings. They've gone wrong. They deserve a total wipeout. And instead, God pulls one man aside and tells him he's going to do something amazing through him and bless all the families of the earth. This was a mystery at the time. How is this all going to work out? It's not a mystery to us anymore. We're on the other side. And we've seen how it all worked out. Through Abraham's family line, God would bring the one who would take the sin of humanity upon himself. And by his death on the cross, he would satisfy that wrath of God. He would satisfy it and make a way for us to be saved from the punishment of our sin. That is just amazing. If we approach this kind of reality, this kind of puzzle piece, and put it in place and just go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that, then we don't understand it fully. We're not grasping it. 
and we're not realizing just how holy God is and just how sinful we are and that there is no reason that we deserve anything good. When we read Genesis, we should be so overwhelmed by the mercy of this amazing almighty God that we just <laughs> just fall backwards or fall to our knees saying, thank you, God. Even before Genesis 12, we saw some glimpses of God's mercy. God was pronouncing the curse on Adam and Eve. He's pronouncing the curse, his decree of judgment on them. And yet, we get a fleeting glimpse of his merciful plan in Genesis 3.15. He says, there will be an offspring of Eve... He will crush the serpent's head. You see how merciful God is? Even as he's in the process of declaring judgment on Adam and Eve, the first sin that had ever been committed, and he's cursing them and throwing his mercy, a little sprinkle of his mercy right in there. There's hope. It's not going to come from you. It's going to come from me. The flood was a terrible display of God's holy thunder, and yet in it, even in it, we see God's mercy. The event where God's blazing anger would be put on display, it would be let loose on the world. And even then, we see his mercy on the human race by allowing a few to survive. And in, in that mercy, we see a picture of the mercy that was to come, the greater mercy a little ark carried the human race into the future. It brought them through the fury, the flood of God's judgment. Just as Jesus Christ carries you and I through God's judgment. The ark took the beating. The storm pressed in on against it. It tossed. It turned. It was threatened just like Jesus bore our sin on the cross and made a way for us to be brought through the downpour of God's wrath. That God is holy comes through loud and clear in the book of Genesis. But at the very same time, we see breathtaking, breathtaking examples of his mercy. As we journey through Genesis, we're going to see more characteristics of God's holiness and God's, God's mercy. We'll see God's holiness and judgment against sin. We'll see it come in the form of fire from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. At the same time, we're going to see God's mercy deliver Lot and his family from that terrible experience. We're going to see God mercifully give a child to a woman who was not able to have one. We're going to see God rescue 11 brothers from starvation through the one brother that they had so terribly wronged. In and through all of Genesis, one thing is going to become very, very clear to us. We're going to see that God is in control that he is sovereignly working in spite of human sinfulness. He takes the garbage that we produce and he turns it into something beautiful. That's exactly what Joseph points out in chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And even in our sin, 
our sin that, that led us to, create the, to, to commit the greatest sin ever, which was putting Jesus on the cross. The greatest tragedy, the most horrific human sin ever committed, God turns into something beautiful as he brings our salvation through it. What kind of puzzle pieces are you working with? What's it doing to contribute to your understanding of your world? Are there pieces that just don't seem to fit together? Does the picture that you're getting not quite make sense? I want to encourage all of us, give careful attention to the book of Genesis. In fact, as we get ready to study this incredible book, devote some time to just reading through it. In fact, if you can, read it all at once. It may take a couple hours but it's going to be time well spent. Let, let the TV go dark and grab a cup of tea or hot cocoa or whatever it is that you drink and sit down and read that thing, the story of how it all began. It's going to take some time, but you're going to see God's holiness, his mercy, his sovereignty becoming clearer and clearer. Our study of Genesis, it's going to be an epic journey. It's going to be a long haul we're going to be in it for the duration. It's going to take us over mountains. It's going to take us through valleys. It's going to cause us to ford through a flood and pass through fire. But man, is it going to be worth it. It's going to be amazing. And I pray that as we travel through, that we see the beginning and find that it illuminates our present and gives us joyful expectation for what is to come. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we stand in awe of who you are, the great and mighty God of all creation. Lord, you formed us. You designed us. We owe our allegiance to you. And yet, Lord, in the book of Genesis, we see how we have violated our relationship with you. We deserve every bit of your punishment, Lord. And yet you've been merciful. You've been good. Lord, I know for so many in this room, they know, they have tasted and they have seen that goodness in their lives. They've dealt with the wretchedness of their sin and they've placed it at the foot of the cross and they have been bathed in the mercy and grace of God washed clean and restored, all because you have been sovereignly working throughout history to bring them to that point. Lord, if there are those in this room this morning who can't confidently say that my life, the life that I live, I live because of Jesus, because I know he has saved me, because I know that he has forgiven me, I know that he has taken away every single one of my sin, and he's given me hope and a future. Lord, if there are some in this room that don't have that, I pray even now that they would come before you and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinful man, a sinful woman, I need what you did through Jesus. Wash me clean. Forgive me. Make me new. Make me yours. Lord, thank you for the fact that Genesis 
is just the beginning. It's not the end. And we have a glorious future to look forward to. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. And now, Lord, would you guide us as we prepare our hearts to leave this place? Give us joy. Give us peace. Give us confidence. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.